looking at that. So uh, just kind of open it up to entertain any any questions that any of you might have before we dive in. If you don't have any right now, I'll try and make sure that uh, you have some by the end of my talk this evening. But Mike, you've got something? Um, I think it was last week you were talking about how um, we can't perceive reality with the the rational discriminating mind, but that um, that we need to use the intuitive side. So I. I've heard things like this before, but is that just, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, just sort of a, a skillful means that's not something that we really are doing intentionally? We're just being that? I, I was a little wobbly on that one. Yeah, well, there, I think uh, a lot of our intuition maybe the entirety of it does fall into that non-intentional uh, basket that you're you're uh, painting there that uh, that that seems to be uh, the way it functions in our lives is if we try to uh, have it come up say I, I i'm going to intuit the answer to this <laughs> Uh, you're probably shutting it down. <laughs> it doesn't like to be put in the hot seat. <laughs> it just kind of uh, likes to sit back and and just kind of flow out as as uh, causes and conditions bring it forth. That seems, to my mind at least, to be kind of part of the uh, part of what makes it intuitive is that it does just naturally. Uh, flow out, but but I'm glad you opened with the question about uh, perception and how that does not uh, give us this gateway to reality, uh, this direct connection. Because I I was going to begin this evening just by talking about our visual perception. To, to draw that very point in a way that I think may uh, help really clarify this for people in a way that they can see more directly and with some clarity. If you think about our, our visual perception, and that's, that's a good place to focus, I think, because uh, I mean, we are visual animals. That's kind of the sense that we rely on to really guide us through through our lives. Yeah, we've got uh, sound, taste, touch, and smell, but uh, those are not key sensations for us in depicting reality. Uh, it's vision. And if, if we just look at what science tells us about our visual capacity, uh, the teensy-weensy little sliver of information we get out of the entire electromagnetic spectrum 
we get these, this little tiny band of certain wavelengths that we can perceive visually. Everything else uh, is, is beyond our capacity, whether it's on the, the radio microwave end of the spectrum or X-rays and, and gamma rays and so on, uh, infrared. You know, there, all these aspects of, of that uh, form of energy and we only access that tiny sliver. So we, we understand this scientifically, but now look at how we receive that input and what we do with it. That creates reality for us. That's how we experience it. Such a tiny bit of information that we understand scientifically is not reality. That's not the, the whole thing. But yet in our perception, we take it as being exactly the whole thing. That's what we work with in our lives. And the good news is that's sufficient. You know, we're obviously getting by okay with that very limited amount of information. So our conventional world of dealing with, with our uh, deluded notions actually serves a very useful purpose. Just like our, our uh, uh, perception, our visual perceptions do. But where we run into problems is when we take that as, as signifying that that's real. That's, that's, that's the true nature of reality, because it isn't, it isn't. But yet, even with that understanding, we still re-enter the world of delusion and we continue to see things and we treat them as being real. You know, that's, that's our nature and that's okay. It's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. We function real well that way. It's just that we need to be aware of the fact that that's not reality. And what I, what, the main point I wanted to try to, to drive home tonight is from that place, how can we use that to deepen our awareness of the oneness of all things. Because our perceptions, driven, like I was saying, primarily by our visual capacity, we see different things. We separate them and we treat them differently. And they're certainly differently from ourselves. So that impacts how we relate to them how we act toward them. They're objects. And my mission is to manipulate them to my advantage, driven by my world of desires to fulfill my desires. So that's 
our conventional existence and why we call it delusion, even though it works pretty well much of the time. Not always, but much of the time. If it didn't, we wouldn't be here. I mean, that's kind of how evolution works. If we didn't have uh, a lifestyle that worked, uh, well, you know, reality has, a, has an answer <laughs> to that. <laughs> It'll take care of that. You kind of clear the board. So it works. But when we open the hand of thought, as Uchiyama Roshi expresses it, letting go of thoughts, going beyond our perceptual world and entering more deeply into this world where we can intuit the absolute, the oneness of all things. This, this world where, and, and now I'll fall back on uh, Uchiyama's commentary, where he says there is only one absolute reality which is prior to any division. This is pretty uh, key to all Buddhist teaching. And all beings are equal and are without differentiation. We human beings differentiate things. That's our creation based on our sensations and based on our conceptualizing mind, how we fabricate thoughts related to our way of experiencing things. And we thereby create our reality. So we create our world and we all do that. But having clear vision of this one reality is called awakening, Uchiyama says. That's what awakening means, is having this clear vision of this one reality. And the only way we can have that is by going beyond our ordinary way of seeing things, of thinking about things. And thinking about things is probably the better term to use to describe what's going on there. Seeing is probably better used for things like intuitive insights. There's this directness to it. Whereas our world of conceptualization, we're separated from that. That's what concepts do. They separate. They separate me from the objects I encounter, and they separate all of those objects. So I discriminate based on those differences that I create. The differences exist 
in terms of how they relate to my interests. The way I see things is largely driven by my interest. Just the fact I do see it. You know, if we get a field of vision, what is it we, we focus on? And how do we arrive at that decision, what we're going to focus on? What draws our interest? So that side of our nature is very much front and center in our perceptual activities. And that's exactly what we're setting aside with the practice of Zaza. Is we let each of those uh, uprisings, arisings of uh, of, of thought, we let them go. And we come right back to what's right here and right now. Directly, not without the, uh, the mediation of thought, but directly being with that. And that's what samadhi is. Remember, this is Jujuyu Zanmai, samadhi. The samadhi is pointing to this oneness. Samadhi is absorption. So you're not separate from any longer. You are at one with. Uchiyama then says fabrication means basing one's life uh, notions created in the human mind. And then counterposed to that, he says, living out the reality of life as it is, is the ultimate way of life. And as it can never be expressed in words, it's called wondrous. Now, we had occasion last week to use the term wondrous dharma. And that is what makes it wondrous. It's, it's beyond expression, beyond description, beyond words. So living out the reality of life as it is, is what we're doing in Zazen without the mediation of concepts and language. We're simply living out the reality of life as it is. So from the practice of Zazen then, and we re-enter our life where we are conventionally working with the things that we experience. But yet with this understanding, with this practice of Zazen, there's a major shifting that takes place. And we understand that our activities in the conventional world, that's not it. You know, it includes those conventional activities. So it's not like they're apart. 
but the conventional world is within it. It's not the, the dominant reality, the absolute reality. It's subservient in a pragmatic sense that simply allows us to go on in our daily affairs, to get places, to do things. But when we can do that and be grounded in this understanding of the true nature and see that as this sense of oneness, so to circle back to the scientific worldview again, because I think in their ultimate nature, really science and, and uh, uh, spiritual paths are not different. I, mean, I think they're, they're, they have an awful lot in common. So, I mean, science looks at, you know, what is the... Uh, what is the nature of reality, breaking it up into things like uh, energy fields as being this unify unifying force. So they're looking at things in a strikingly similar fashion, which is why I think when science really starts to push to the outer boundaries with things like cosmology or, or quantum theory, uh, it really starts to look an awful lot like spiritual practice. So that can also be helpful, at least I find, in terms of this experience of oneness. What is it that we all share in common? This basic life force that I share with all other beings. Just because my section of that force is arranged in such a way that it generates within me a sense of self and so on and so on. I can also have the understanding that that sense of self is actually a delusion. There isn't really a self. But pragmatically, it can be helpful to have a sense of self. In fact, it's kind of critical in terms of our development going through adolescence into early adulthood. If we haven't gone through that, developing a sense of self, some kind of identity, uh, I wouldn't recommend Buddhism as a practice. <laughs> You'd probably just dissolve on your cushion. <laughs> it might not be pretty. <laughs> Didn't Shunru Suzuki have some quote about you should have just enough sense of ego to not walk in front of a bus? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's there for a purpose. Yeah, this sense of self.
self-preservation and, and, and caring for oneself. But we can look at it more broadly and see it as uh, beneficial across the board. But as, as, a, as a motivator for us, you know, we've evolved to have this sense of self. I could also, you know, thought experiments wise, uh, you know, I could envision uh, uh, maybe on another planet where, where they actually evolved to not have a sense of self. And yet they, they took care of everything. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they would care for everything. But yeah, that's why I like the Borg as a counterexample, because they do kind of point to why maybe it's, it's a beautiful thing to have a sense of self. As long as we don't, you know, as Suzuki was trying to point out, uh, it has a role to play, but we can overplay that. And then it becomes pretty detrimental. So to find that place of balance. Self and no self. Buddha, like just like Buddha nature, no Buddha nature. The basic uh, fundamentals of, of Mahayana uh, teaching is that anything that you put out there is a Dharma teaching, as a position, you have to include its negation as well, or else you're not really seeing it in its entirety. You've narrowed it down. And to see its negation as well at, the, at one and the same time is to expand it. And that's when you can begin to intuit the oneness through those expansions. Because we, we don't really stand much of a chance of intuiting it if we still have those very narrow walls that we put up. We've got to get beyond there. So it goes on to talk about Dharma as the reality of life. And each and every one of us is living out absolute life. This is true no matter what situation we find ourselves in. The reality of life and how we're living that out. Moment after moment after moment. And to really be in touch with the reality of life. To be in touch with our life before the conceptual overlay gets dropped on top of it. To actually experience it in and of itself, which you know, we, we get this 
in uh, spiritual practice. Uh, we get it in terms of uh, being in nature. You know, the natural world can certainly instill that kind of awareness for us. Or, you know, in the artistic realm as well. That there's a recognition that if we try to just understand it conceptually, whether it's nature or art, uh, we're missing something that doesn't really get to the heart of it, that there's something far more profound involved there. And we have to get beyond our thoughts and concepts to be able to access that, to see the real beauty that's there, the wonder, the wondrousness. And to come back, you know, the next section of Uchiyama's comments speak to this sense of self. This is where he says, uh, uh, we live out the self that is only the self. And no one can become a different person. So in a sense, from birth to death, we are completely alone. And we experience that. I mean, we can be in a, in a crowd of people and feel, really experience our, our, our uh, aloneness. So it's something that goes deeper than just being with others. This sense of being alone. And we are different people. So if you have a headache and I take some Advil, it's not going to do you much good. <laughs> yeah, there, uh, there's a very important sense in which we are separate beings that way. So when we talk about this oneness, it, it includes the separateness that's so clear and obvious. Again, they're not contradictory. It's not that if you have the oneness, then you can't have the separateness. You can. But the oneness, I guess we might say, is, is what's primary because it encompasses the separateness. Nothing is, falls outside of the oneness. So when we intuit, have experience with this sense of oneness, it's still our intuition. We've experienced that.
and for each each individual it's a different experience but yet it is an experience that's available to everybody that's part of uh, uh, Uchiyama's commentary here as well that's a very important point very important consideration here Because as he points out, every one of us is living out the self that is only the self. And in a similar vein, living out the present that is only the present. And those are very related uh, uh, ways of seeing this. You know, the present, of course, we have to be in the present. So at all times, that's where we are, is in the present. And in, in uh, very much the same sense, we're always living out the self, just like we're always living out the present. We have to. So we all, this is kind of what we all share in common. not just as homo sapiens, but all living beings. Because all seem to, just based on the way we can observe their activity, they all have, seem to have this sense of self. And because this is true across the board, Uchiyama describes this as an absolute truth. That every one of us is living out the self that's only the self and living out the present that's only the present. It's absolute because it applies across the board without exception. So other people are nothing but myself, and the past is nothing but the present. It all revolves back into the, the self and the present. But of course, keep in mind, those are empty too. So it's not like we're dangling something out there that finally you can hold on to. They're empty. But in terms of how we experience our reality. It all comes into the self and into the present. This is where we exist. So other people are nothing but myself. From my my perspective, so this is my way of intuiting our oneness based on this absolute truth. Of course, the past and the future have a similar relationship to the present because they don't exist separate from the present. 
So this living out the self, which is only the self, and the present that's only the present, is a, not just another way of depicting suchness. Each moment, each experience, is everything coming together to form this experience. And this experience is always your experience, and it's now. This is absolute, universal. It's not someone else's experience. Kind of comes back to taking Advil. <laughs> you know, it's not somebody that by taking the Advil is going to uh, cure somebody else's headache. So we can begin to see how our conceptual frame of reference, where we separate out past, present, future, self and other, uh, is, is illusion. That's not the true nature of reality. So Zazen allows us to access this foundation of the reality of our life experience. And that, as Uchiyama puts it, is, uh, is the, the criterion or the standard of Dharma being Jijuyu Zanmai. Jijuyu Zanmai, self-manifestation. You'll notice self is in that. And that's the practice of Zazen. That's what we're doing, allowing self to manifest in its absolute nature. And being able to let go of our deluded thoughts, views, so that we can become intimately connected, awakened to this true nature that we always are, because we're always living out this life of our true self. Always, even in the midst of delusion, it's still always grounded in living out our, our life. All we have to do is let go, open the hand of thought. So practicing Zazen, he says, is the true gate 
to playing in this samadhi of the self that is only the self. And I, I love his use of the word playing. I think that's important. The sense of playfulness about it. Where we can, because the playfulness is letting, is total letting go. This is the playfulness of young children before they develop senses of competition. And now the playfulness is very goal-oriented. But before that stage, you know, there's just the sheer play, the sheer joy of it. In fact, I have a photograph at home, a friend of mine, uh, from Evanston many years ago. He died many years ago, too, but uh, he was a photographer. and He had uh, uh, a photo that I, I purchased from him because uh, it was so stunning. It was these two young girls in a Parisian park and they're throwing this ball up in the air. And it, it was this this experience of, of pure playfulness with you know their, their the focus of their eye on the ball but yet the joyous expression on their face too that's why as soon as i saw it i said can i get can i buy a print of that <laughs> that's just overwhelming in fact I'll, I'll try and remember to bring it in next week so i can share it with him that's uh what what's being pointed to here. This playful aspect of it. Playing in this samadhi of the self. With, with nothing to attain. No goals to achieve. Another line that uh, is, is poetically, I guess, the expression of, of these girls in the park is uh, from uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that is completely it. <laughs> that nails it. And I guess I'll, the place I'll close, up, close out here tonight is uh, where Uchiyama next talks about how, although this Dharma is abundantly inherent in each person, because we're all living it, it's, it's always there. But in spite of that, it's not manifested without practice. So as some of you are aware, that was like the burning question for Dogen. If we already are Buddha nature, if we already have it, why do we need to practice? That was 
his big question. But as he points out here, although this Dharma is abundantly inherent in each person, it's not manifested without practice. It's not attained without realization. It remains covered over, buried by our conventional lives. And we can never see it, become aware of it. And that's kind of a shame. We're back to that Lotus Sutra metaphor, parable of the, uh, the jewel hidden in the robe that we all have our true self. So practice is our way of awakening to the presence of that jewel. That we have along with all other beings. And that understanding can transform our own life and our relationship to others. But without it, you know, we're just separate from others. And our dealings are driven by you know, all these desires. We never see the jewel in ourselves or in others. All right, well, I think that's enough ground covered for one evening. So I'll stop here and we still have some time for any thoughts you might have ran again okay um some of the teachings uh, when we get into talking about um, always being in the moment, being in the present, mm -hmm. and at the same time, no self, I, I find it rather ethereal. It's sort of like being on the razor's edge. Yeah. If, uh, um, if that makes sense. And this is very challenging to me at times, even when I'm writing, because in playwriting, I'm always trying to stay in the present. That's mm -hmm. the real um, nugget for me. It, it, it is a challenge to always have everything that you're writing be right now. And it's the same with the Buddhist practice or with our lives. And I kind of get it, but I don't totally get it. I, I don't. Yeah. And I don't even know how to do it when I write. So um, I don't know. That's all. Can you comment on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can. I can try. Uh, but 
Yeah, I, I think the parallel certainly is is uh, is valid about uh, uh, creating artistically and our practice and this this uh, lived reality. The difference that that uh, takes place when that's what's coming forth versus the reality that's being filtered by all of our concepts. Those are just filtering devices. So it, it kind of distills it. But when it just comes out in its pure form, and then maybe after the fact, after it's come out, then you might approach it with, with uh, some of the filtering uh, uh, to, to give it shape, but especially when it first comes out, to be able to just let it come from that deeper place, trusting that. That's that playfulness. So you kind of have to give up that sense that you're, you're, you're trying to, to create something in particular. You're just letting something come out that, uh, and, and trusting it. That's, thank you. That's very helpful. And I also, um, I'm glad you pointed out about nature because in nature, when I'm out in nature, it's just, it's just there. Yeah. It's, there's, there's no separation. Yeah. Cause we experience nature then as, as something totally beyond us that we are part of it, but it's so much greater than us. But thank you for what you said that, that, that very, that helped. Okay, good. Oh, sure. um, <clears throat> with all, all the talk about past, present, and future being here now, mm -hmm. tonight, remind me of something in Bindoa that I read early on. It's on page 24, and I highlighted it, and it was really a, just a good, I can't say enlightening, and be serious <laughs> about that. It was a very nice thought for me. Uh -huh. uh, and the, the line is, we practice the way because we are already in the way. Mm -hmm. And it's like we're so many times I'm thinking, you know, maybe in, in, in more human realm kind of thinking, how far down the road am I? You know, how much more practice? How much more do I have to learn? And, and I'm forgetting that you know, we're practicing because we're already in the way. Yes. And, and, and one other thing he said that was nice leading up to that, our practice is endless, enlightenment is beginningless. Mm. Yeah, I remember that. And it's sort of tying together things to come yet out of Dogen, like Uji. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it just has a wonderful way of taking those opposites of bringing them together. <laughs> yeah. So all the talk about the way and along the way and past, present, and future and, and everything is, is, I think, nicely tied together within that, those couple of comments.
much less a lot of other things that Dogen has to say. Yeah. So, thank you. Okay. I think we're good then. All right. I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings, to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume, to draw strength and guidance from the living earth the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species to support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. All right, well, good night, everybody, and we'll be back here Saturday morning at 